Hey, I want to break from our series in Acts for just about five weeks, for the next five weeks, during the month of April, this week and the whole month of April, as we celebrate Easter. Uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to see parts of Scripture that make up kind of the narrative of the hope we have in Jesus. Uh, we're going to see today the reason why Jesus was crucified and condemned, one of the main reasons why he was crucified and condemned. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' betrayal. Uh, by his follower, by Judas, and we're going to look at his be betrayal by Pilate. We're also going to be studying the crucifixion and the resurrection and finally his ascension. So we're going to be in John John chapter 10, verses 22 and 33 through 33. As you're turning there this morning, uh, a little bit of context that during winter, a group of Jews approached Jesus outside of Solomon's colonnade during the Feast of Dedication, or what we know as Hanukkah. Hanukkah celebrates the Jews, uh, Jews recovering Jerusalem during what was known as the Maccabean Revolt from the Seleucid Empire. If you were in my Daniel Sunday night study, you've probably heard about this a little bit before. The Jews that approached Jesus during Hanukkah demanded that Jesus tell them clearly whether he was the Messiah or not. After Jesus answered that he was the Messiah, their response was anger. And it was a desire to stone Jesus. And at all points in the Gospels, at all points in the Gospels, Jesus was always clear that he and the Father are one. So today, I want us to understand two main points. We're going to take two big pictures from uh, this morning. Why Jesus was crucified is that one, Jesus claimed to be God, and two, Jesus was accused of blasphemy. That was the charge against him. So if you have a copy of, your God, of God's Word, let's look up John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. It says this, Then came the Feast of Dedication, or the Festival of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and 23, or excuse me, in, in verse 23, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Verse 27 says, my sheep listen to my voice I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31 says, And his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Okay, so why did, why did the Jewish uh, religious establishment seek to crucify Jesus? Okay, we often wonder this. Why does such a, a great man like Jesus, one who, who fed the hungry and healed the sick, who cast out demons and did such amazing work, why in the world would anyone want to kill this man, least of all put him on a cross to kill him? 
Well, the first reason was that Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed God, and that led to him being accused of blasphemy. Well, let's see in verse 25 through 29, again, what it says. It says, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because, here's your reason, you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one, he says this again, notice this. He keeps emphasizing, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are, say it, one. If you want to hear my thoughts on this passage, if you want me to boil them down quite simply, because Jesus didn't really leave a lot of ambiguity about this passage either. It goes like this. Jesus claimed to be God in the Gospels. Very clearly, he claimed to be God, and he always claimed to be God. He knows who his followers are. He is the one who grants eternal life. Jesus gives his followers, followers eternal security and has the power to keep his followers from losing their salvation. Jesus claims to be God in essence, in power, authority, and kingship. You want to boil it down? There, there's, your, there's my thoughts on that. That's, that's basically what's going on in this passage. The, the Jews who approached Jesus wanted clarity about who Jesus was, like we all do. In a rare instance where Jesus gives kind of a, like a quick snapback to people who ask a question. You know, he didn't ask a question in reply. I mean, he just was very clear in his response. He tells them, okay? Uh, he tells them exactly who he was and that he was God. But according to Jesus in verse 25, what was the main issue with them? If you look at verse 25, it says, Jesus answered, he says, I did tell you, but you did not what? You did not believe. The main issue here, was unbelief. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't his life or Jesus' perspective on Scripture. It all boiled down to their refusal to believe that Jesus was not just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good guy. He just didn't have good ethics or good morals. It boiled down to the fact that these Jews did not ever accept Jesus as being deity, as being the Messiah. Jesus made it clear that it wasn't about his actions in verse 25, that he just they weren't crucifying him just because he was a good man. Here's the reason that Jesus gave for their unbelief. It says, because you are not my sheep. That was the reason. How can Jesus say this? How can Jesus uh, say that you are not my sheep definitively? Does Jesus have the right? Does he have the authority to make that call on those who are his sheep and those who are not his sheep. Does Jesus have the right to do this? Yes, he does. Absolutely. Jesus is in control of salvation, not us. And he's in control of salvation from A to Z. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, convicts our heart of sin. He opens our eyes to the truth of the gospel and grants us the gift, the gift of repentance. 
All of these are good gifts from us being convicted, for us having our eyes open to the truth, and being the gifted the grant, granted the gift of repentance. All of those things are a gift that God gives us so that we can have a relationship with him. It's a gift because even while we were yet sinners, Jesus does this for us in his mercy and in his grace. Even while we were yet sinners, Jesus takes the initiative with us that we don't approach him. He first reaches down and opens our eyes to the truth and convicts us of sin. He takes the initiative, grants us conviction, makes it clear to us who Jesus is and puts in us the gift, the desire to repent. Why did the Jews in this passage fail to repent then? Especially in light of having Jesus with them face to face. Jesus says it plainly in verse 27. He says, my sheep do what? He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they do what? What's the next part? They follow me. They follow me. That's huge for us. It's a huge gut check for any of us who, who claim to be followers of Jesus to know that, one, your salvation from, from A to Z is totally grace and a complete gift from God, which leads us to humility and gratitude. This leads us to humility and gratitude, knowing that I'm not the one who was good enough. I know I'm not the one who was smart enough. I couldn't earn it. All of this is a gift. This doesn't lead to us puffing ourselves up. This leads us to bending the knee in humility, saying that my salvation, anything good that I've ever received from Jesus is a complete and total gift of grace and mercy. And this is why we tell, because that grace is available for another person. It's not because they're good enough or you're good enough. We're not in some elite club here. We're here because Jesus is elite. And he is merciful and gives us grace. And it's, it's difficult to hear, I think, sometimes. But if you claim to be a follower of Jesus and have zero desire, though, to spend time with God or read his word or grow in him, then you might need to reevaluate your standing in Jesus. Because if we're not following Jesus... Are we really committed followers of Christ? It says, my sheep, listen to my voice. It happens, and then they what? Do. It's I hear, and then I do what he says. And I'm not saying there aren't occasional times of being spiritually dry. We've all had those and might have them often. But what I'm saying is if if you may, you may have walked an aisle decades ago, and if you have walked that aisle decades ago, but, but since then have had absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, could it be that you never really surrendered your life to Christ in the first place? Because when it says Jesus speaks, they listen, and then they follow. Notice in verse 28, Jesus says, he takes the initiative here, and he puts himself at the center of this. Verse 28 says, I give. It's his actions to you, not the other way around. It's not something you obtain or earn or are the focus of when you are saved or even in your growth, by the way. 
Jesus does all of this in you. The Holy Spirit grants you the ability to grow in your faith. He says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus's alone to give. And if Jesus says, I give them eternal life, he's saying he has the power of God himself because God alone is the only one who has the power, authority, and right to give eternal life in the first place. Jesus just didn't have to come out and say, yes, I am God. It was implied in all of these things. It says, I give them eternal life. Well, there's only one who can do this. He was being very clear about who he was and his abilities as God to do whatever he wants to do, which is give salvation freely to whomever he pleases. I give them eternal life. And I love that because he follows it up with a promise. Listen to this promise he makes to you, believer, here. It says, I give them eternal life, promise number one. Here's the next one. And they shall, if they're good boys and girls, not perish, right? Is that what it says? No, it just says, if you're in him, you shall what? Never. From right now to eternity in the future, you shall never perish. I think the song Amazing Grace says something to that effect. When we've been there, how long? 10,000 years. In what condition? Bright shining as the sun. We have no less days to sing his praise than what? When we had first begun. He says, I give them eternal life. And Jesus wasn't being, uh, you know, over the top here. He really meant eternal When we've been there a billion years, it's as if we've been there just one day. This will go on for eternity. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. I love this part, too. And no one, not you, not me, not your struggle, definitely not Satan, will be able to do what with them? Snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because Jesus has the authority here with salvation. This is why we claim Okay, first of all, as Christians, but second of all, as Southern Baptists, in eternal security. If we are really in him, if we're really listening to the voice of Jesus, if we're really following, we truly believe since Jesus is the one who controls salvation, that when Jesus says you have life, no one can take it from you because it's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on whom? Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus isn't talking about statements about a possible reality or a could-be-true-one-day future event. When Jesus spoke these words, he was speaking in the current moment, in the now, about truths that will happen in the future and will always be true. Jesus is speaking about the future as if he is the one in total control not only of the cosmos, but of the eternal destiny of his followers. Not only does Jesus have the authority to save and grant eternal life, but he has the power to enforce that claim as well. Notice at the end of verse 28. Notice at the end of verse 28 where Jesus says, no one, not your mom, not your dad, not your spouse, not Satan, not the entirety of hell can snatch you out of his hand. Granted that you are his and that you're following the voice voice of Jesus. If I'm in control of my salvation, if I'm in control of my salvation, I would lose it hourly at best. 
Okay, this would be a moment-to-moment thing I would often do if I could lose my salvation. This is why the hymn writer Annie Hawks wasn't joking around when she wrote this hymn, when she said, I need thee every hour. Stay thou nearby. Temptation lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour. Enjoy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour hour. Every hour I need thee. And that's just another poetic way of saying moment by moment, I need Jesus's sustaining work in my life. Because the moment he takes his hand off, if that were to ever happen, and it's all about me, I'm lost. Jesus is in control. Praise the Lord that Jesus holds our salvation in his hand. Praise the Lord that no one, not even you or me, can snatch us out of his hand. Praise the Lord that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith because if not, friends, again, we're lost. Praise the Lord that Jesus and the Father are one. Which brings me to my next point. All this, we've read up to this point, I think it's very clear that Jesus claimed to be God. The Jews did not accept that Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore they accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God and not really being God. They accused Jesus of blasphemy. Again, in verse 31, you can see where the Jews actually understood exactly what Jesus was saying. They didn't say, oh, he might mean something different. No, they understood exactly what Jesus was getting at by their response to him. It says in verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents, I think it's interesting it says it that way, picked up stones to do what? To stone him right there on the spot. But Jesus said to him, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus' confession that I and the Father are one, it has echoes of what's called the Shema passage in Deuteronomy 6.4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's kind of like the basic confession of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Just like, like we would say, Jesus is Lord is the basic confession of Christianity or that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is the basic confession of Christianity. The Jews hearing Jesus say, I and the Father are one, would have recognized the dots that Jesus was connecting when he said, I and the Father are one. So for years, the religious leaders believed and taught that the Messiah was going to be a liberating military commander, a real uh, commanding uh, force to, to free the Jews from their Roman oppressors in a way that mirrored their liberation from Egypt. But when Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and didn't have any conquests under his belt or didn't have any military ambitions, but instead had ambitions to build a spiritual kingdom that included, of all people, the Gentiles. The Jews were very upset, and they accused Jesus of blasphemy. 
and the penalty for blasphemy was death. To the Jews in this verse, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. There was no ambiguity in what Jesus claimed. They asked for clarity, and they got it. Notice also Jesus' clarity didn't lead to less conflict. It led to more. Times when we are clear about who we are in Jesus, it may, it may have the potential to put us at odds with some in our culture and definitely at odds with the narrative of our culture today. None of us in our right minds want conflict or to be at odds with other people about our faith. So we need to be clear in our hearts and in our minds about first, who we are as believers and two, what hills we're willing to die on regarding our faith. And my hills are few and very narrow. Here are the hills that I am willing to die on, big time. I'm willing to die on the hill of the deity of Jesus. I'll go toe-to-toe with that for the, till the day I die, that Jesus really is God, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that Scripture is our foundational standard of life and practice as humans. Those are the hills I'm going to die on. If these standards put me at odds with others, so be it. If this costs me future opportunity, so be it. These are the things that I've I've chosen, and I hope hopefully you have too, but I want us to think together as individual and families, what are the things as we continue to, as our faith continues to put us at odds in some ways with the narrative of culture, what are the things that we as individuals and as families are willing to die on this hill? This is the thing that come what may, this is where we stand. We can't control the actions of our neighbors or the cultural responses to our faith, but what is in our control when that happens is the tone we use, the attitude we use, the method and approach we use in sharing, as well as being smart and discerning regarding when and when when and where to share. If you notice in verse 32, let's look at that real quick. Verse 32 says, But Jesus said to them, so Jesus takes the initiative and speaks, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Verse 33 Their response was, we're not stoning you for any good work. You hear the sarcasm in that? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Our loving actions are vital to us being Christians. They're essential to being believers. They're more than just getting our foot in the door with unbelievers. Our good actions are who we are as followers of Jesus. But ultimately, ultimately, we are evaluated in our culture by what we really believe about those actions, what motivates those actions. Why are you doing what you're doing? And the Jews in this text this morning illustrate this this truth perfectly. I'm sure they love the good things Jesus did. No one said healing or feeding people 
was bad. I don't hear of anybody protesting Jesus feeding the 5,000 people on the side of the mountain. But when Jesus, the moment Jesus was clear about who he was, that's what got them into trouble. That's what got him into trouble. When he was clear about his theological convictions. You know, there's a quote that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. I think we all understand kind of the, the sentiment behind that quote. You know, always live like a believer. You know, let your actions be um, gospel-driven as well. But I think that quote, where it comes from a really good spot, it, it falls short in the respect that our loving actions alone, by themselves, you just put them in a box, our loving actions alone aren't the gospel. They are the fruit of the gospel in our life. We, we, we are loving and kind, and we do things as a fruit of what's happened in our lives. Our motives, though, are theological, okay? Because good people, okay, who are lost can do loving things, and we also do loving things as well as Christians. What is the difference between that? Well, it's the theological claims that we make. Our motives are theological. We love people because we believe that all of humanity is made in the image of God. That is our baseline starting point, that you were made in the image of God. Therefore, you have unique worth, dignity, and value. What motivates us isn't just that they're just another person. That's a good thing, but it's not the deepest, most profound reason. We don't want another's temporary happiness or temporary allevi alleviation of suffering. We want them to have all of those things and more on an eternal scale in Jesus. We don't want temporary happiness. We want your eternal happiness. We don't want your temporary security. We want your eternal security. So when the Jew says, we aren't stoning you for any good work, they weren't joking. And our culture would say the same about us. They would say, we're not mad at Southern Baptists because they build schools. We're not mad at Southern Baptists because they lift more people out of poverty and educate more women and girls worldwide than any other faith-based group. They would, our culture would never express anger with us because we give millions of dollars of free medical care and clothes to third world countries and even within our own country or are the third leading disaster relief organization on the planet, that's not why they'd be upset with us as Southern Baptists. They won't stone us for good works. They'll, quote, stone us for our theological convictions. Where we stand on Scripture, where we stand on the deity of Jesus, where we stand on the family, and this is where you and I, our families and our churches, have to have a sure footing, our firm foundation and a clear conviction. We have to remain standing firm on the solid rock so that we can have the faithfulness and obedience to move forward in our culture. For Christ, he wasn't accused of being a, quote, bad guy at all, morally or ethically. He wasn't accused of being a bad person. He was accused of blasphemy. It was the primary reason the Jews sought to crucify Christ. 
It wasn't, his so, it wasn't social reasons. It was theological reasons. We need to continue moving forward both in word and in deed. Be clear about what we do, but be clear about why we do what we do and in whose name that we do it. It was his stance that set the stage for what brought God the most glory through Jesus. Without this clear truth that Jesus really was the Son of God and that we believe this to today, his betrayal and his time before Pilate may have looked very different. A mere man who wasn't God, who really didn't believe what he claimed, would have buckled. He certainly wouldn't have faced the cross. But Jesus, because he was God incarnate, faced all of these things. Jesus' deity is why Jesus is no longer in the grave, friends. It's why Jesus isn't in the grave anymore. Because He is God, it's why He's at the right hand of the Father right now as we speak in this room. And He will always be there. And guess what? If you're with Him, if you're in Him, you will be there too. Because He gives you eternal life and no one can snatch you out of His hand. Why? Because Jesus is God. Period. And that's why you can have new life. That reason is why you can have new life today through Him. It's why you're here this morning. Not by accident, but by providence. Not randomly, but by intention. If you have this stirring this morning in your heart to give yourself completely over to the will of God, it's not emotions not a result of my making an eloquent case for Jesus by any stretch, but because the Holy Spirit alone is drawing you. He's the one who moves in your heart, not me, not your spouse. It's Him alone. This morning, give your heart to Jesus. Renew your commitment to Him. Join this body of believers for your good, for the world's good, and for His glory. As the team comes and leads us, Let's bow our heads and pray. Let's think about...